with me this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at the second half of verse 5 uh, up through verse 10, so the end of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians uh, and starting in verse 5. And as you turn there, you know, who do you imitate? Who do you imitate? Invariably, as you spend time around other people, especially a lot of time around other people, you do begin to imitate them. You begin to uh, maybe pick up some of their tics and behaviors, uh, catch phrases, catch on, uh, share language, in-jokes, and other matters begin to mark a group that spends a lot of time together, or two people who spend a lot of time together. Sometimes this can be a very bad thing. It can be a bad thing as those uh, influences weigh upon a, a person, because if the language of that group is one of gossip, of, of one of hatefulness, of one of foolishness and filthy talk, uh, those things begin to bear fruit in the lives of the members of that group. It can be bad when to fit into that group, you have to act in certain ways that are not in accord with righteousness. It can, however, be a good thing can be a good thing. When God's grace is the foundation of a group or the foundation of a relationship between two people, it can be a good thing. When love is central, it can be transformative. It can be the source of encouragement and growth and godliness and in the furthering of the gospel. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are called to a vital faith, a living faith, a vital faith it is fruitful faith worthy of imitation. And so let us look at our passage this morning, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 5, and I'll read all of verse 5. If you're able, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. And you may be seated. So remember, Paul and his co-workers in the gospel mission are writing to a church that is besieged by persecution. They are being attacked uh, from without, outside of the church, and so they're writing to this church uh, to persevere, to encourage them to persevere. He is writing to Christians who have placed their trust and hope in Christ despite every outside external reason not to. And he thanks God for him. That's what he's been doing so far. He's, he has been thanking God. He says, every time we remember you in our prayers, we thank God for you, brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, because the power of God is working in their midst. 
And so what we find in our passage this morning is a continuation of that thanksgiving. Uh, and again, this goes through uh, chapter 3. So we've got a lot of time. Paul spends a lot of time thanking God for the ministry among them, for, for his prayers to God for them. And so he is continuing to thank God for the faith that the church has exhibited, uh, a faith that has not been merely in word, but also in deed. And so let's look at verses 5 to 7 to begin, and we'll see good imitations. Uh, good imitations, not good vibrations. Good imitations, right? Good imitations, 5 through 7. And we've already looked at the first part of verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. So just briefly, uh, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, came not merely in the hearing of the word, but in the acceptance of the message, in living out the implications of the gospel. Because the gospel does have implications for how we are ought to live. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And the Thessalonians need only look to the example of the missionaries that came to them and preached the gospel to see an example of what that means to live out the power of God in the gospel. And we see that in the second part of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. They know who these missionaries were. And Paul's going to go on in the first part of chapter 2 to actually lay out some of the ways that they were among the Thessalonians. But, but right now, uh, what we need to understand is that they had a certain kind of character, a certain kind of life among the Thessalonians. And so uh, he is reminding them of that. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the character of the missionaries led the Thessalonians to imitation, to imitate them. But I think it's good for us to pause here for a moment and think about that word imitation or imitator. Right? Because normally when we hear that word, we probably have a negative context of it, right? a negative connotation with the word imitation. When we think of imitation, we might think of imitation crab meat, friends. There's an, there's an example. Right? It's not crab. Right? So it's a bad thing. Or maybe we think of an imitation uh, jersey. Uh, I've had some friends sometimes uh, go on eBay and buy a jersey um, and, and from Florida, so a Bucks jersey, and... Uh, you could tell it was imitation because the patch on the side of the logo of the, of, you know, the Bucks skull and crossbone was clearly not the Bucks logo. Right? You could clearly tell it was an imitation. Uh, or we think of maybe imitation um, bags or you know, kind of uh, handbags, those kinds of things. And what happens is they fall apart. Right? The, the, they're poorly made. They're cheaply made. And so when we think of the word imitation, we probably think of that. You probably think of those things. We, we don't typically find good imitations, right? But what we're talking about here in um, the book of 1 Thessalonians is we're talking about good or worthy imitations. Because ultimately, who are the Thessalonians striving to imitate? Notice what Paul says. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. They were being imitators of Christ. Paul commends the Corinthian believers this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So even in that context of 
when Paul says, you became imitators of us, we have to understand who Paul and his uh, co-workers in the gospel were trying to imitate. Christ. The reality is Paul is not trying to gather around himself. Uh, he's not trying to get them to imitate him and his idiosyncrasies. I can't even say the word. We're not going to try it this morning. You know the word. Uh, if not, I'll spell it for you later. But so, right, Paul is not trying to build his own brand or reputation, right? This is not what Paul is doing. And understand that that's a common form of imitation today, right? When we talk about social media influencers, and maybe you uh, aspire to be a social media influencer so you can get all these kind of, you know, brand deals and stuff, I guess, I don't know. But what's the, what's the point of a social media influencer? Is to gather a people who would imitate them in using a product or a service. And to say, if you want to be cool and beautiful like me, right? if you want to be awesome and amazing like me, you'll imitate me by purchasing this product. And, and of course, for the influencer, it's about money. It's about ad, <laughs> advertising revenue that they get for being part of that. Right? Brands pay them money so that you would imitate them in their use of a good or service. But Paul is commending them not to that, right? Paul's not commending them. He's not saying, I want you to buy, um, I want you to buy Paul branded uh, scripture books, uh, scripture scrolls, because they don't really have books back then, but scripture scrolls, and Paul branded, and uh, you should really get this because it's great. Uh, it's made from the finest of... Um, I don't know, deer skin, you know, whatever, whatever they may have available. Uh, uh, that's not what they're trying, right? That's not what he's trying to do. He's not selling a good and a service to the Thessalonians that he's trying to get them to imitate. What is he doing? He's commending them to imitate something good and godly. Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he told the Corinthians, right? Be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus. Part of that imitation included suffering. Because notice the context here, right? For he says, for you receive the word in much affliction. Paul's leaving of Thessalonica was as he often left many of the cities on his missionary journey. It was in the context of persecution. In fact, uh, Acts 17, and again, Acts 17 is where we get Paul's time in, in, the, in and among the Thessalonians. But Acts 17, verse 5 says this, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul and Silas are preaching the good news to the Thessalonians, and the Jews, and probably in this context it's the Jewish religious leaders, so like the leaders of the synagogue, and they become jealous about the people that Paul and his Gospel preaching is attracting. Uh, and so they did what they often did when they perceived someone was stepping in on their territory. They attacked them. And the Thessalonians suffered for their reception of the word, right? So when Paul says, for you receive the word in much affliction, he is saying that they indeed received the word and it wasn't in an easy time. It wasn't just everybody was happy-go-lucky saying, I'm so glad that you decided to believe in Jesus. No, it was with affliction. And so we see in Acts 17 that Jason, who is one of the uh, believers there, 
he is carted off before the authorities, right? The Jews raise this rabble, and they can't find Paul and Silas, so they find Jason, someone associated with them. They take him before the, the authorities, and Jason even has to post a bond, to uh, a security, to get out of jail in order to move on. And we don't really know what, what transpires of all that, what, what, what becomes of all that, and the persecution that continues there among them. But it's not a good start, right? It doesn't seem like a good start for a church. That they would be uh, persecuted and afflicted and attacked. And yet they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that seems strange too, right? How, how are you in the midst of affliction joyful? It seems silly like when Paul says rejoice always. And again I say rejoice. Because... What does always mean? Always, right? So, when you're being, and I think quite literally, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, for them to believe in Christ is to lose their head. And I don't mean that in a, in a you know, metaphoric sense. I mean that in a quite literal sense. That it will cost them their very life to confess what we confess so flippantly. All right, what we say to we believe so flippantly. And they do so by God's grace with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, you see examples of that in church history and even English church history, where there are faithful uh, brothers who, for their confession and their testimony in Christ are burned at the stake. And in the midst of their being burned at the stake, they're singing hymns. They're singing with joy. I don't know that I would have the perseverance for that. I think I would be singing in pain. But they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word in much affliction. They counted it joy to suffer. Even as James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James chapter 1. Or how about Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ counted the joy that was set before him as greater than the death, the suffering that would be his on the cross, the shame that was his on the cross, the curse that was his on the cross. And so these, these believers here, right, they became imitators of Paul and of, the, and of the Lord. Did Paul suffer for his acceptance of the word of Christ? Yes. Did Christ suffer for his preaching of God's word, yes. And the Thessalonians emulated that. They, they imitated that. They were good imitations, not unworthy imitations. So much so, look at verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In this joyful persecution, and by the way, that is a very strange phrase to write and to say, in this joyful persecution, the Thessalonians become examples to all the believers in the region. 
So remember, Macedonia is where uh, uh, Thessalonica is. It's part of the Greek peninsula. And Achaia is kind of another part of the Greek peninsula. It's a part that includes the city of Athens, right? Uh, which we uh, probably are more familiar with. So the Thessalonians here, they're, they're, they are encouraged to continue in their imitation of, of the missionaries and of Christ because their examples are going forth. Their examples are being cited as, as reasons to believe in Christ and to continue to believe in Christ in spite of the persecution. But who do you imitate? Who do you imitate and are they worthy of imitation? John, in his third letter, says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John's advice is simple, but we, do we really bear it in mind? Who do you listen to? Who do you pay attention to? Who do you study and learn from? So often, we spend our time in studying those in the world around us, those who do not trust in Christ, those who do not know Christ or follow him. We fill our minds with the ways of this world, especially through media. We see that so much in media, right? Whether that's YouTube, social media, um, just regular TV and, and movies, those things are shaping us. And perhaps we wonder why then we do not do the things of Christ or we do not love the things of Christ. We should wonder little when those who profess Christ walk away from him when they do not look to an example of him. More simply, is it any wonder that children who may be raised in the church walk away from the church when the example of the, the people that they are imitating are not Christ. They're not people who follow Christ. Should we wonder why when the examples that those children see in their parents are not a parents who are imitating Christ? Now, is it categorically true that uh, every child who has a, a parent um, walks away from Christ. No, right? It's not, that's not categorically true. I'm not talking about things that are true always. But statistically speaking, we see a lot of it. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Who are we imitating? Who are we emulating? And are we ourselves an example worthy of imitation? And for instance, you should expect of me that I would be one worthy to imitate. And I confess I fall far too short of that far too often. And were it not for God's grace, I would be undone and come apart. You should expect much of people who would lead in the church. You should. But this is not matter a merely for, uh, matter for merely the leaders of the church. You too, Christian, whether you're a leader in the church or not, should have a faith worthy of imitation. Because look at what Paul doesn't say here. He does not say, you leaders in the church of Thessalonica, you are really great examples. 
He doesn't say, you pastors there in the church in Thessalonica, you've been doing a really good job. What does Paul say? What does he say? Verse 7, so that you, and we'll call this the southern y'all, so that y'all, y'all became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And may we of Redeeming Grace Fellowship strive to be examples worthy of imitation, good imitations of Christ, not just here in these walls, but in this whole region. Let us have a name that exalts Christ in such a manner. But the work of the Thessalonians' faith was not confined to a region. They were actually broad examples wide-reaching examples of Christ. And let's look at that in verse 8. Verse 8 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. These believers were fruitful. The word of God went out from among them. They didn't keep the word to themselves. They didn't hide it away. They didn't bury it in the ground. They didn't go out in the back with the old Folgers cans, stuff their faith in it, and bury it away. As maybe you do your life savings, or at least some people in this region may do with their life savings. No, they sowed the word far and wide. And the word went forth from them not only in their region, not only in the larger region of which they were part, but Paul says, your faith, the, the, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Caia and everywhere. It's gone forth everywhere. And it behooves us to consider, why is that? Why is it their faith went out everywhere? What was it about them that made it so? It was God at work in them and through them. What does verse, the first part of verse 5 say? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, something happened to those who believed in Thessalonica. Something happened to them. Something changed them. They were saved. They were born again. They were new creations in Christ. And this is the really remarkable thing, or maybe it should be the thing that is arresting to us, that stops us and pauses us and causes us to pause and consider if we are in Christ, we have the same faith, the same power, and the same Lord. Or do we? And I ask that question not merely to equivocate, as though to say, yes, we do, and no, we don't. But I ask it for this reason. What of our churches? What of the faith that we proclaim? Does it come in power? Does it come in the Holy Spirit? Does it come with full conviction? Will the faith of us here listening, will it go forth everywhere? The difference between us and the Thessalonians culturally may be greater than we can really understand, right? There are a lot of years in between us and the Thessalonians. In some ways, culturally, again, there's not much difference. If we look to the Roman culture, it was an opulent culture. That is, it had a lot of wealth, and uh, it, it was uh, 
had certain standards about it. And they were filled with sexual immorality, pragmatic philosophies, and a relativism of religion that, you know, uh, like that Cynthia's favorite bumper sticker, everyone could just coexist. That's what they tended towards. But the difference between the Christians in Paul's days, the Christians that he's writing to, and us, should be little. Language, yes. I don't think we speak Greek, Aramaic. Um, we don't do the Latin. Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but so languages, cultural context, yes. Right. There in the Greek Peninsula, we're here in Kentucky or Corntucky depending on which part of Kentucky you're from. But power, Holy Spirit, and the full conviction and the truth of the gospel, no, that should not be the difference between us. That should not be different. I want to give you a little bit larger chunk of the words of Jesus. I encourage you to maybe turn there. It's uh, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 5 through 13. And I just want to see this for a moment. What, what, what does Christ tell us? Luke 11, starting in verse 5. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Perhaps the weakness in the church today stems from this very point. How little we ask for. How little we ask of the good of our Father. How little we ask for the Holy Spirit. Today, would you pray to God for the Holy Spirit? Would you pray that he would open your eyes to see the truth of his word? Would you ask him for spiritual gifts to edify the church with? Would you ask him that he would fill you, fill us, that the report of our faith may extend over a vast distance? And on this last point, why would we pray that our faith may extend over a vast distance? Why should we be examples of faith? Because it is a matter of the glory of God. It is a matter of people. Do you realize this? Everyone ought to give worship to God. And there are many, many, many who worship everything but God. It is a matter of the glory of God that we would go and we would plead with worshipers who worship false gods to worship the one true and living God. This church is not about us. 
Our time gathering is not about us. It is about the glory of God. And in God's glory is our good. So when I talk about God being glorified, I'm not saying we should be neglected. No, because in God being glorified, we are satisfied. Being a broad example of faith is about giving God the glory through his name. Do you get that? Paul doesn't need to say anything about the faith of these believers in Thessalonica because they've already said much about their faith, not with words, but how they live their life. They're not boasting about themselves, but in their example, God has been glorified, and they've had a productive faith. So let's look at that in verses 9 through 10. They were good imitations, and they were broad examples, and they also have productive faith. Verse 9, for they themselves, that is, in Macedonia and Achaia and everywhere, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They report. The report has gone forth. These Thessalonians have really, truly been changed. They really, truly believe. And it is in the proof of the way that they've lived out their faith. They proved what they thought about Paul and his preaching. They heard the word and they believed it to the point that they turned from worthless idols to worship the true and living God. Something happened to them. They were born again. They saw the futility of their idols and served God. I've recently been uh, reading through again the book of Judges. And there's a sad refrain throughout it. You might be familiar with it. In those days there was no king in the, in the, among the people of Israel and they did whatever they wanted. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. And it's a sadder thing, and it's one looking toward King David, right? They're looking toward a king that would lead the people in truth and righteousness. But in the midst of this book, it's a reminder of just how far they've fallen. And I was recently in um, Judges chapter 17, and there's one such example of how this refrain goes. And it's uh, centered around the worship of false idols, something, again, we see a lot in the book of Judges. And sorry, Micah, this is a bad example of your name. So uh, I'm not talking about you, but I am to you, okay? So uh, Judges 17, 3 through 6. And he, that is Micah, uh, restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand, uh, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So how this plays out is this guy steals a bunch of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. He steals a bunch of money from his mom. And his mom is, is talking about it, cursing uh, and, and that. And when uh, he hears this, he goes and he restores it to her. And when he restores it, right, we see that he, his mom goes and makes an idol of it. She pays someone to make an, an image of a false god. And the mother says there in, in, in verse 3, she says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord. And you don't, if you look at the text, uh, it's all in capital, which means this is the divine name of God. So she's saying, I dedicate this to the Lord God. And what does she say? 
from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now stop and think about that for a moment. What does the Ten Commandments say about making an idol? Thou shalt not. Right? Thou shalt not. What's worse is in the same chapter, a Levite is passing through, comes across this house, and Micah says to the, to the Levite, you should come into my house and be a priest to me, and I will be a father to you, and you can lead in worship of this false image, of this false idol. And again, stop and think about that for a moment. Who are the Levites? They were to be the people, the priests of the Lord God, who would lead the people in worship of the Lord God, who would know the law and adjudicate according to the law. In the book of Judges, we see the people turning from serving the true God to serving a false God, and not without consequence. There were bad and dire consequences for their false worship. And here in the book of Thessalonians, we see the reverse. We see a people who were worshiping a false god begin to worship the true and living God. This is the power of God at work in their midst. And as we look to our own culture, there are many false gods. And there are many so-called churches that worship false gods. There are churches, and, and it may not always take the context of creating a statue and bowing down and worship that. Although understand that that does happen in the Roman Catholic Church. There's a reason why they have statues and images and paintings. And there's a reason why we do not. Right? The gods of our culture, however, tend to be much more subtle. Power, money, sex, to name a few. Pleasure, leisure, comfort, to name a few more. But a vital faith is a fruitful faith that turns from vain things and worships it, the one God alone. Verse 10 says, not only did they right, turn from uh, idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The report of the reception of the gospel wasn't just about how they stopped worshiping false idols, but how their hope changed. They hoped in Christ Jesus, they turned their eyes to Jesus. They waited for his coming again. They prayed, as we see in the end of the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. They waited with anger longing for Jesus to return and make all things new, right? This Jesus who God raised from the dead. And that was the hope of their resurrection, that they too, though they may sleep, would raise from the dead. And Paul says more about that in chapter 4 of this book. But they serve the living God who raised the living Son, raised Him from the dead. They serve the Father who sent His only begotten Son. And as they believed in Him, they would not perish but have eternal life. They were saved from the wrath to come, right? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And this should give us pause as well because there is wrath to come. Many in our age, as it was in the day of Peter when he wrote his second letter, say, well, all things have continued as they have, right? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. All things have continued. The sun still rises and may not always shine 
you know, on a today a day like today, it doesn't seem like it's very shiny. Uh, but but the sun still rises, it still sets. The moon still rises, it still sets. The stars go in their courses. Everything continues as it was as at the very beginning. So, is there wrath to come? And certainly, there are Christians. Even among Christians, it is popular to say. There is no wrath to come. God loves us. Kumbaya and all that. Right? But there is wrath to come. God will pour out his wrath upon this world and its inhabitants. Listen to this from Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Disaster is coming upon this place, and more importantly, judgment is coming for all who have and do and will walk this earth. Wrath is coming, but Jesus, and Jesus alone, can deliver us from that wrath. We can have a salvation that is forever. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that's what is meant by that word propitiation. When it says there that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the bearer of God's wrath for our sins. Jesus bore the wrath due for our sins for those of us who believe. Jesus Christ stands in the place of sinners to deliver them from the wrath to come. And if you here trust in Christ, you will be likewise delivered. You will have this hope. You will long for the return of Christ. But if you are not in Christ, do not long for his return. Because that only means your sure and true and just judgment. So Paul's thankful to, the, to God for the Thessalonians because theirs is a vital faith. It's a fruitful faith. Theirs is a real faith that has consequence, not only in the midst of the church fellowship, but in their city, not only in their city, but in their region, not only in their region, but everywhere. The example of the Thessalonians' imitation of Paul and the other missionaries and even of Christ himself is worthy of its own emulation. And so I ask you this morning, is your faith worthy of imitation? Is your faith worthy of other people imitating it? And that's a hard question to ask because it asks us to look maybe a little more deeply into ourselves than we care to look. It causes us to look a little bit more deeply into ourselves than we would want to look. It's difficult because if we're honest with ourselves, we would say the same thing that Paul does in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But the living out of our faith in Christ is not about an impossible standard which we never reach. Although we in Christ are called to an impossible standard that we will never reach the side of heaven. But it is about God's grace. Paul continues in Romans 7 with verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Thess Thessalonians were not a perfect church filled with perfect people. 
perfect Christian. Even Paul, Silas, and Timothy who are writing to them, they're not perfect Christians. But they were imitable. They were worthy of imitation. They were examples far and wide. Why? Because they believed the word of God and sought to live in accord with it. The Holy Spirit had indwelt these believers, and it is in His power that they had a fruitful faith. And so I ask again, is your faith worthy of imitation? It's not about perfection, but striving. What are you striving for? Paul says it well in Philippians 3, 12-14. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Fathers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what's the upward call? That call on the final day when the trump will sound and we join Christ in heaven. If you are in Christ Jesus, let the grace of God motivate you today to do better, to strive to do better today. God's grace wipes out the condemnation of your sins for your sins. And this is what frees you to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And understand, I preach this morning as much to myself as I do to you. So let's encourage one another in these things. We need to encourage one another, agitate one another to love and to good works. Let us show the love of Christ towards one another. Let us speak the words of God's grace to one another. Let us go into Maysville and be the evidence of God's grace. Let it be reported, not that there is a new church in town, but that there are people who have been so radically impacted by the good news of Christ that there are a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have the power, the, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction about the gospel. And for some of you in Christ, as you take stock of your faith, of your life, you realize that there is little for anyone to imitate. Or at least you would be embarrassed if someone began to imitate your speech and your deeds. And so repent. Go to God and confess your sins and turn from them. Go to Him and pray that He would give you the fullness of His Holy Spirit. Ask God for His Holy Spirit that you would live differently. Turn from your idols. Serve the living God. Some of you are not in Christ. You don't have a vital faith. You do not have fruit of a faith that you profess. And you need the good news. You need to realize that if you are striving to earn God's approval, you will fail. You will fall short. You will never do good enough to earn God's approval because you can never do good enough to earn God's approval. Your natural sinful flesh means just that. But that does not leave you without hope. There is hope in Christ because God has made provision for you. He has made possible the forgiveness of your failures, your sins. He has made possible in you a faith that would be worthy of imitation, a faith and a life like that unto his sons. Christ purchased for you who believe freedom from sin, freedom from death, eternal life, new life, vital faith. And this vital faith is yours if you trust in Christ. If you confess your sins and turn from them, God will save you. He will begin to work in you all that he requires. 
He will work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, which means that by the Holy Spirit, you will begin to want to do the things of God, and you will begin to do the things of God. All those that He commands. So turn to Christ. Look unto the Savior. Trust in Him. Confess your sins, believing the good news of Jesus. 